When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once, the day it drops? Sign up for Slate Plus. It supports not only this show, but all of Slate's acclaimed journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives. Plus, Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes, with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks. And now, please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. Cause he likes the name And he sends him to the finest school in town Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Malanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 50 years ago, Elton John cracked the American Top 40 with the lead-off single from his album, Madman Across the Water, a majestic story song with lyrics by John's partner, Bernie Taupin, about a fictional character named Levon. Anchored by Elton's piano and bathed in plush orchestration, Levon reached number 24 on the Hot 100 in February 1972. Among Elton John's vast catalog of hits, Levon still does pretty well. At Spotify in the U.S., the song has been played over 25 million times. If you are an Elton John fan or hear him on classic rock radio, there's a pretty good chance you know it. But if most of your radio or digital music listening has happened in the last two decades, I'll bet that the follow-up hit to Levon. Another heavily orchestrated story song from that same Elton John LP is one you know much, much, much better. This, of course, is Tiny Dancer. At Spotify, as of this week, it's been played more than 570 million times, about 23 times as much as Levon. At U.S. radio nowadays, Tiny Dancer is consistently one of Elton John's five most played 70s songs, alongside the likes of Benny and the Jets, Your Song, Rocket Man, 
and don't go breaking my heart. If you've been alive in the 21st century, you can probably sing every word to Tiny Dancer. Out in the street, and in tickets I've but if you were alive in the 1970s, maybe you didn't know Tiny Dancer so well. Because while this single also made the Hot 100 back in 1972, it peaked at number 41. That's not only 17 spots lower than Levon. That also means Tiny Dancer missed the American Top 40. It was never counted down by Casey Kasem. It was on and off the Hot 100 in just seven weeks. Songs like Tiny Dancer are what I call legacy hits. Their classic status isn't captured by their original chart performance, but they may now be among the first songs an artist is remembered for. Some of these legacy hits missed the top 10. Sometimes they missed the top 40 entirely. Or even failed to reach the entire Hot 100. There are even legacy hits that went all the way to number one for a week or two, but are now arguably bigger than they were back in their day. Certainly, a song's legacy can be reshaped by the movies or television. Or even sports. An artist with a number one hit might find that, years later, the song that appeared on a soundtrack might now be better known than that other chart topper. But sometimes, sometimes the public just organically decides they like a lower charting song better than the song that went all the way. Today on Hit Parade, with the help of our friends from data providers Luminate, we will break down just how and why the herd changes direction, why low-charting hits might turn out to be iconic hits, the ones that establish an act's legacy.
It's one thing when a rock and roll Hall of Fame act like Talking Heads or Etta James or Peter Gabriel has one low-charting song out of its vast catalog that now punches above its weight. But perhaps the more definitive examples of legacy hits are the acts with just two major singles. Say, one hit that made the top 10 that is now somewhat forgotten, and another hit that missed the top 40 but is arguably their song for the ages. As it happens, I have just such an example. And that's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending March 15, 1980, when The Romantics, What I Like About You, reached its peak on the Billboard Hot 100 of number 49. If you've danced to this barn burner at a wedding or grooved to it on your car radio, that peak for The Romantics' legacy hit might surprise you. Now, don't fret about this foursome from Detroit. They'll be back on the Hot 100. They'll crack the top 40, even the top three. Can you name their big hit from four years later? We'll reveal it later in the show. I'll whisper it in your ear. For now, it's a secret that we'll keep. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So, the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. I'm going to say something now that might strike our listeners as surprising, maybe even sacrilegious, given what this podcast is about. The charts aren't everything. They even sometimes get it wrong, or are just way, way off. Like, for example, 
how do I defend the fact that this song, Modern English's I Melt With You, peaked on the Hot 100 in 1983 at number 78? Answer, I don't. That chart peak is a crime. It's a crime because our fellow Americans really love this British new wave song. I Melt With You is a staple of classic hits radio. According to Luminate, in the last 12 months, I Melt With You was played on U.S. terrestrial radio 74,000 times. That's more airplay than most Christmas carols, and this is in 2021 and 22. In that same 12-month period, Modern English's one major hit was streamed nearly 31 million times. That's more than some recent Taylor Swift songs. So, how is it that, back in 83, this early MTV classic, a legacy hit if ever there was one, couldn't even make it one quarter of the way up the Hot 100? Sure, as a critic and a chart analyst, I can provide theories. I Melt With You sounded more edgy in 83 than it does now. Maybe too edgy for pop radio then. The fact that its label, Sire Records, was better known at the time for hip acts like the Ramones or Talking Heads than for scoring pop hits, at least before they started promoting Madonna. That might have something to do with it. But honestly, these rationales just sound like excuses. In 1983, when it comes to I Melt With You, the charts just got it wrong. Mind you, I'm not accusing Billboard of anything here. I firmly believe that the trade magazine that compiles our flagship charts has always done its best with the data they had. No, the public just wasn't ready for I Melt With You in 1983. Clearly, over the last four decades, they have come around to it. This is what I mean by a legacy hit. You might say I Melt With You is the Rocky Horror Picture Show of hits. It's astounding Time is fleeting Madness takes its toll Rocky Horror is the third highest grossing film released in 1975, just below Jaws and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But Rocky Horror made the bulk of that money one midnight show at a time in the years after 1975. It's now considered a kitsch classic, but it took years to find its audience. Calling, 
Back to the pop charts, here's one other thing to keep in mind. Like the box office rankings, the charts are only compiled one week at a time. As I say so often on Hit Parade, timing and circumstance have a lot to do with why one song does better than another. The difference between a number one hit and a number two hit is often an accident, the result of how the data broke down in any given week. To pick one example, 16 years later, I'm still pissed that Gnarls Barkley's superlative alternative R&B classic, Crazy, was prevented from topping the Hot 100 in the summer of 06 by a fluky leap to number one by Fergie's schlocky London Bridge. Now, Fergie's song goes down in chart history as a number one hit, Gnarls Barkley's as a number two. But Gnarls Barkley's song is the legacy hit. At Spotify, Crazy has accumulated a lifetime total of 730 million streams, more than five times the number of London Bridge. Sure, the charts in 2006 were accurate. That week, Fergie sold more downloads than Gnarls Barkley. But culturally, the charts kinda got it wrong. Radio, in particular, is a good gauge of legacy hits. I call radio the truth serum of hit-making. We might hate the way it overplays certain records year in and year out, but with all that call-out research and ratings data at their disposal, radio programmers know what keeps us from flipping the station. So if, for example, they play Rick Springfield's Jesse's Girl 85,000 times in a year, as they did between September 2021 and August 2022, those radio guys have figured out that we really want to hear Jesse's Girl more than any other Rick Springfield song. By the way, this is an instance where the Hot 100 got it right back in the day. Jesse's Girl is Springfield's only number one hit in August of 1981. In terms of legacy, the difference between Jesse's Girl and any other Springfield song is stark. Don't Talk to Strangers made it all the way to number two just a few months later, in early 1982. But in the last year, Don't Talk to Strangers was played one fourteenth as much as Jesse's Girl. I've got plenty more of this data where that came from. 
Throughout this episode, with the kind assistance of the team at Luminate Entertainment Data, they provide the raw numbers that fuel Billboard's charts, I'm going to provide not only radio data, but also streaming plays to break down how some low-charting or no-charting hits back in the day became legacy hits. Unless otherwise indicated, by the way, these numbers were collected between September 1st, 2021 and August 31st, 2022. Most of the hitmakers I'll be discussing, unlike modern English, were not one-hit wonders. It's actually more revealing to look at acts with multiple hits and compare how their lower charting hit back in the day might now have a stronger legacy than the one that peaked higher. The differences can sometimes be rather staggering, and there is often an explanation. What guys talk about. You know, the finer things in life. <laughs> Check it out. For example, in 2000, R&B singer Cisco scored with this lascivious landmark, his ode to barely there underwear, the thong song. Just say the name Cisco, and most folks will start singing thong song. Let me see that It did very well on the Hot 100, reaching number three in May of 2000. But a few months later, Cisco scored a number one hit, and this one, I'll wager, is less familiar to most Americans. I don't see that without you, girl, my life is incomplete. Oh, yeah. The ballad Incomplete topped the Hot 100 in August of 2000. The reasons for this discrepancy are rather technical. Thong Song was never issued as a physical retail single. It charted based on radio airplay alone, which was considerable, but not enough to get Thong Song to number one. Incomplete, on the other hand, did come out as a CD single, with Thong Song added as a bonus track, a B-side, if you will. Incomplete scored respectable radio airplay, especially on R&B radio, but stellar sales. Hundreds of thousands bought the Incomplete single, some to own the ballad, but many more to own Thong Song. Hence, Cisco got his number one hit with Incomplete. But nowadays, these songs' fortunes are reversed. In the last year, Incomplete was played on the radio about 2,700 times and streamed a little over 12 million times. Not bad. But Thong Song more than doubles those numbers. Over 6,000 radio spins and nearly 30 million streams. In short, Thong Song, 
despite never topping the Hot 100, is clearly Cisco's legacy hit. It is far more popular than his hit that charted better back in the day. And that's just the difference between a number three hit and a number one hit. What if we widen the gap? Consider this ditty. Legendary singer-songwriter Paul Simon has scored many hits, both with Art Garfunkel and on his own. In his solo career, he's cracked Billboard's top 10 with such classics as Mother and Child Reunion, Kodachrome, Loves Me Like a Rock, and Slip Slide and Away. But the first single from his Graceland album, 1986's You Can Call Me Al, is not one of those top 10 hits. I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be on long lost path. Surprising, right? You Can Call Me Al is ridiculously catchy. But in 1986, Simon was coming off of a fallow period. His 1984 album, Hearts and Bones, had been a relative flop and generated no hits. No one was expecting a big pop hit from Paul Simon in 1986. When You Can Call Me Al was issued late that summer, it missed the top 40, peaking at number 44, and it soon fell off the chart entirely. It was only after Graceland won the Grammy for Album of the Year in the winter of 1987 that radio programmers gave You Can Call Me Al another look. This gave Al enough oomph to re-enter the Hot 100 and finally crack the top 40. Three months after Simon won that Grammy, Al peaked at number 23. But number 23 still understates how popular Paul Simon was at this time. Millions of people bought Graceland, and if they were buying the LP, they probably weren't buying the single, which likely explains why Al missed the top 20. Now, for comparison's sake, let's go back a decade. In 1976, Paul Simon also won the Grammy for Album of the Year, that time with his Still Crazy After All These Years LP. Only that time, Simon was on enough of a hot streak to also top the Hot 100 with this funky little jam. Just slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, stand. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover is Paul Simon's only solo number one hit. It spent three weeks on top of the Hot 100 in February 1976. And these days, 50 Ways gets plenty of radio spins. Hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and get yourself free. In the last year, it racked up 2,100 radio plays. However, 
that number is dwarfed by Simon's later Grammy winner. In the same 2021-22 period, You Can Call Me Al was played nearly 12,000 times, nearly six times as much as 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Now, in large part, this is generational. Oldies radio stations, which are now targeted at generations X and Y, not baby boomers, nowadays play more 80s music than 70s music. Interestingly, on streaming services, You Can Call Me Al and 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover were about even in the last year, at roughly 20 million streams apiece. But that's still remarkable. A three-week number one hit from 1976 is now streamed as much as a number 23 hit from a decade later. Honestly, it's hard to say Paul Simon has any one legacy hit. Frankly, the first paragraph in his obituary someday will probably list his Simon and Garfunkel classics, like The Sound of Silence, Mrs. Robinson, or Bridge Over Troubled Water, before his solo hits. Still, the data is hard to ignore. For anyone younger than boomer age, Paul Simon's solo legacy hit is, arguably, You Can Call Me Al. We can do this all day, playing with the data, comparing old chart peaks with current musical consumption. Like this Barry Manilow song, Copacabana, the one about the showgirl named Lola and her love triangle with Tony and Rico, which only peaked at number eight in 1978, but now generates more airplay and streams than any of his number one hits, like I Write the Songs or Looks Like We Made It. It's even roughly on a par with Mandy. Or the Peter Gabriel single that was a total flop in its day, Salisbury Hill, a number 69 hit in 1977. Which is now one of Gabriel's most played radio hits, 8,000 spins in the last year, nearly 18 million streams, and so many movie trailer and TV appearances. Hold that thought on Peter Gabriel and the movies, because we'll come back to him with some other hits later. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The stories of why all of these legacy hits fell short in their day are pretty specific and bespoke. It's difficult to generalize. But broadly speaking, you can place legacy hits into a handful of categories, some very broad explanations for why a hit changes trajectory later in its life. Before I get to the categories, we first have to set aside songs that didn't appear on the Hot 100 in the first place. As we have explained on several previous Hit Parade episodes, For almost all of the 20th century, as per Billboard rules, a song had to be issued as a retail single, a standalone track you could buy in a record store apart from its album, to be eligible for the chart. So, that explains why such now-legendary songs as The Beatles' Here Comes the Sun, Here Comes the Sun, or Fleetwood Mac's Landslide, or Billy Joel's Vienna. When will you realize Vienna waits for you? Or Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. now do better as radio songs than they did on the charts. These songs didn't make the charts because they weren't issued as 45s. Zeppelin's Stairway, for example, is by far their most played radio staple. In a typical year, it's spun about 40,000 times on U.S. stations. But in essence, Stairway's non-appearance on the Hot 100 was intentional. Led Zeppelin, in 1971, didn't want to sully that song's image by letting it be a mere pop hit. Perish the thought. As for the legacy hits that were issued as singles and did make the Hot 100, Let's group them together very broadly into three buckets. I'll call the first bucket the Deus Ex Machina category. Songs and artists that were affected by an outside cultural force they had nothing to do with. Among Neil Diamond hits, Sweet Caroline didn't do badly at all. It reached a lofty number four on the Hot 100 in August 1969, 
As we noted in the pilot of Hit Parade, that was the highest that any Diamond song had reached on the charts to that date. But Neil was just getting started. He scored number one hits throughout the 70s, like Cracklin' Rosie in 1970, Or Song Sung Blue in 1972. Or Neil's smash duet with Barbara Streisand, You Don't Bring Me Flowers, in 1978. And yet, none of these chart toppers holds a candle to Sweet Caroline. On Spotify alone, Sweet Caroline has generated more streams, over 516 million than the rest of Diamond's 23-track Greatest Hits album combined. Just in the last year, it's been played on the radio three times more than Cracklin' Rosie and six times as much as Song Sung Blue. And again, those were number one hits. So why is that? Why Sweet Caroline? Oh, come now. If you've been in a stadium in the last quarter century, you know why. Legend has it that the practice of mass group sing-alongs to Sweet Caroline, including that triple so good, so good, so good that Diamond never actually sings, started at a Red Sox game in Boston's Fenway Park in 1997. This practice has since spread to stadiums around the world, including English and Irish football clubs and the Ontario Hockey League. It will probably never die. Talk about a legacy. All this sports exposure ensures that Sweet Caroline will long outlive Neil Diamond. A combination of sports and television had something to do with the reappraisal of Journey's Don't Stop Believin' in the 21st century. As we noted earlier this year in our TV Tunes edition of Hit Parade, Believin' was first adopted by the Chicago White Sox in 2005 before appearing on the finale of The Sopranos in 2007. Fifteen years later, Journey's Anthem, a number nine hit in 1981, lower charting than three other Journey hits, is probably playing somewhere in America as I speak. Over 
according to a recent column by radio analyst Sean Ross, Journeys Don't Stop Believin' is routinely played on U.S. terrestrial radio around 3,500 times a week. Again, that's per week. That's more than Neil Diamond's Cracklin' Rosie or Song Sung Blue are played in a year. Speaking of media exposure, we could probably compile a list of legacy hits affected by the movies alone. The Beatles' Twist and Shout in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody in Wayne's World, Dusty Springfield's Son of a Preacher Man in Pulp Fiction, Iggy Pop's Lust for Life in Train Spotting. In all cases, these songs were not the artist's highest charting hit, and they are now among the act's most played or most streamed tracks. One of the best career redefining examples is Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band's Old Time Rock and Roll, a number 28 hit in 1979 that, after its appearance in the 1983 blockbuster Risky Business, became Seeger's most reliable radio staple. Nothing like Tom Cruise in a pair of tidy whities to make a song iconic. To this day, old-time rock and roll has more lifetime streams than any Seeger song by a long shot. Its 215 million Spotify streams beat his number four 1977 hit Night Moves by more than 30%. And they beat Seeger's only number one Hot 100 hit, 1987's Shakedown, by a multiple of 25 to 1. One other deus ex machina trendlet is the song that gets sampled by another song, thus turning the original song into a legacy hit. That's arguably what happened to this Stevie Nicks hit, which originally missed the top 10, peaking at a frustrating number 11 in 1982. Edge of 17 was always popular on album rock stations but it went into permanent classic hits rotation after Destiny's Child did this to Stevie's killer guitar riff two decades later. Nothing like that Beyonce magic. Destiny's Bootylicious hit number one in 2001, and two decades after that, Edge of Seventeen is Stevie Nicks' clear radio staple. With 63,000 spins in the last 12 months and 59 million streams, by the way, that's seven times the radio spins and 14 times the streams of Stevie's highest charting Hot 100 hit. 
her number three 1981 duet with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Stop Dragon My Heart Around. I'll give the second Legacy Hits category the somewhat cryptic name, Formatting. What I mean by that is, there are songs that didn't fit into radio's format boxes in their heyday and, as a result, underperformed on the charts. These were empirically classic songs that, like modern English's I Melt With You, should have done better in the first place. Speaking of samples, Rick James's Super Freak was prominently sampled by MC Hammer on the rapper's 1990 smash You Can't Touch This, as we discussed in our Great War Against the Single episode of Hit Parade. But back in 1981, I'd argue that it was formatting that fouled up Rick James and kept his classic funk jam from reaching its potential. Super Freak reached number 16 on the Hot 100 in 1981. Not terrible, but not remotely reflective of how ubiquitous that song seemed in 81. Basically, in the early 80s, in the wake of the disco backlash, pop stations were underplaying or underreporting scores of records by black artists, even when they were connecting with the general public. Even on black radio, the super freaky super freak only got as high as number three on Billboard's R&B chart, while other Rick James hits like Cold Blooded went all the way to number one. But now, Super Freak obliterates all other Rick James jams. Super Freak was spun 25,000 times in the last year and streamed 55 million times. Those numbers are 25 times the radio spins and 16 times the streams of Cold Blooded. Sticking with the early 80s, format can also explain the entire early career of Billy Idol. Billy Idol was always hard to define genre-wise. A legitimate English punk who rose with the 70s punk group Generation X, Idol became associated with everything from synth pop to new wave to even metal by the 80s. This uncategorizability arguably hurt Idol's career for a few years before it began to help him. Dancing With Myself a 1980 Generation X song that Idol remixed and re-released as a solo single in 1981 didn't make the Billboard charts that year at all, 
but Billy wouldn't give up on it. After he scored a couple of minor hits in 1981 and 82, Idol re-released Dancing With Myself in 1983. This time, it made the charts, but it only bubbled under the Hot 100 at number 102. At a moment when Top 40 Radio was playing New Wave, but mostly the new romantic synth-pop of Duran Duran, Kaja Gugu, or Culture Club, Billy Idol still sounded a little too punk for Top 40. It was only a year later when Billy softened his sound that he cracked the U.S. Top 10. With the rockin' ballad, Eyes Without a Face, a number four hit in 1984. Nowadays, Eyes does pretty well on the radio, 6,300 plays in the last year. But that's a fraction of the spins racked up by Dancing With Myself. which generated 31,000 radio spins, nearly five times the number of Eyes Without a Face. What sounded too daring and punky in 1981 and 83 now sounds like toe-tapping comfort food on classic hits radio. I would call Dancing With Myself one of Billy Idol's legacy hits, but not necessarily the legacy hit. He has several. Hold that thought because we'll come back to him. For the third category, I'm just going to label it Zeitgeist. Over time, as the public mood shifts about certain artists, so do opinions about their songs. The public may like a song in its original day, then grow to love it later. This has arguably happened multiple times with Irish rocker slash soul balladeer Van Morrison. This is Van Morrison's highest charting U.S. hit, 1970's Domino, which peaked at number nine in early 71. It still scores some spins to this day, 2,600 on the radio in the last year, 11 million on streaming services. But this much smaller, much jazzier hit does much better these days. Can I just have one more, more dance with you, my love? Can I just make some more romance with you? Moondance a 1970 track that was only issued as a single in 1977 and then only hit number 92 on the Hot 100, racked up 3,800 radio spins in the last year and 27 million streams. Remarkable for a record that didn't come close to the top 40. 
Of course, both Domino and Moondance are crushed by Van Morrison's Brown-Eyed Girl. A brown-eyed girl. a 1967 number 10 hit that is now the most played Van hit of them all, 37,000 radio spins in a year, and a staggering 126 million streams. I guess that's what happens when you devote a song to brown-eyed people. Still, the fact that Moondance, a number 92 hit, puts up such respectable numbers to this day indicates that Morrison has, one might say, more than one legacy hit. What if we run the numbers on a classic artist with more than one number one hit? to determine which of her blockbusters is the biggest of them all. Even here, the charts are not a perfect barometer. In 1987, Whitney Houston's I Wanna Dance With Somebody Who Loves Me was a smash two weeks at number one on the Hot 100. But it spent fewer weeks on the chart than the number one hit it replicated from the year before, How Will I Know? Dance With Somebody also spent fewer weeks at number one than such contemporary hits as Whitney's own power ballad, The Greatest Love of All. And it spent far, far fewer weeks on top than Whitney's 1992 mega blockbuster, the 14-week number one, I Will Always Love You. And yet, in 2022, just turn on the radio, pull up Spotify, or hell, go to a wedding, and it's as if I Wanna Dance With Somebody is the only Whitney Houston song that exists. In the last 12 months, I Wanna Dance With Somebody Who Loves Me was played on the radio more than 70,000 times. 70,000. That's three times the spins of I Will Always Love You, a song that spent a dozen more weeks at number one than Wanna Dance did. I Wanna Dance With Somebody was streamed 111 million times in the last year. Stunning. That's more than double the streams of I Will Always Love You. The public has spoken. Maybe they like Carefree Whitney over Torchy Whitney or Empowerment Whitney. Maybe folks just really want to dance. Why they like I Wanna Dance With Somebody over How Will I Know, I'll never understand. 
The point is, even among the big hits by a pop titan like Houston, the way the public now gravitates toward one specific hit was wholly unpredictable based on the charts of three to four decades ago. So, now that we've established some categories, can we compile a list of the biggest legacy hits of all time? There's no perfect yardstick. We'd have to compare singles that peaked all over the Hot 100. And nowadays, there are discrepancies between what radio programmers and streaming listeners prefer. But that doesn't mean we can't try. When we come back, I offer a totally subjective, only somewhat scientific countdown of the biggest legacy hits of all time. At last, their day has come along. Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanfi. That's me. My producer is Kevin Bendis. Special thanks this month to Jimmy Harney and the entire team at Luminate for the wealth of data they provided. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer and Derek John, the supervising narrative producer of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the hit parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfi. To press my cheek to a thrill that I